Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, I'm John Ridley. And I'm Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline.com. And this is Doc Talk. And this is Doc Talk uh, moving into probably the most intense time of the year for, for folks in, in Hollywood and in our business. The Oscar nominations have, have come out. And uh, obviously, we're focusing on the, the documentaries. The nominees. Are, may I read the nominees? Is that all right with you? I feel, I feel like we're on stage. Yes, and I'm, we're two presenters idea. returning to each other. And like, do you want to read the nominees? <laughs> the nominees this year, Bobby Wine, The People's President, The Eternal Memory, Four Daughters, To Kill a Tiger, and 20 Days in Maripol. Uh, did I pronounce that correctly? I think you have a better pronunciation than I do. I pronounce them Mariupol. Okay, I'm going to go but with I don't you. know, this, I could be wrong. Yeah, well, that's. A, I'm glad you brought <laughs> that up. This is a good translation uh, transition. Um, Matt Carey is rarely wrong. And one of the things, Matt Carey, as we talked just a little bit about these films that got nominated, one of the things, and I ask you, I said, oh, I hate to put you on the spot, but do you have any thoughts about how the shortlist and how the nominations may go. And one of the things that you brought up is that there were many more and the Academy has been building out their, its international membership. And you really thought that the international vote would flex itself. And the majority of these films, if not all of these films, these are international films. They're all of or them. certainly dealing with international subject matter. Yeah. Um, if you count or discount yes. National Geographic as a, as a producer. So you you're kind of spot on in that regard. Well, that, it's a relief in that sense to uh, <laughs> not be comp exposed as completely off base, which is entirely possible. Yeah, it seemed to me to be the the significant theme coming out of the shortlist announcement. And one never knows, but uh, yeah, I'm certainly not the only one who was surprised that two of the, the big American-themed favorites didn't make it on. I'm talking about American Symphony, which is about the musician Jean-Baptiste and his wife, Suleika Jouad, and still a Michael J. Fox movie. I, I thought those were mm. very strong favorites to earn nominations. But boy, they were left out. And in its place, yes, as you're saying, these internationally-themed documentaries... Uh, set in India, set in Uganda, hmm. set in Chile. Uh, so in, in Ukraine, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, you do a really nice, and I really encourage everybody to, to hop over to Deadline.com and read your breakdown of the nominations and some of your interviews or quick reactions from some of the folks who were nominated. Um, I'm, I'm curious for you, in this group, this five, how do you view this group? How do you view these choices in terms of how they represent? How, how do you feel about the votes that were, were put forward by the, the members and the peers? Well, it's, yeah, you always have to think about it coming out of the documentary branch. The, the, that branch determines both the shortlist and then the nominees. Now, at this stage, the full academy will vote on it for the final winners. 
But the dock branch is, uh, you know, you can really read tea leaves quite a bit to try to understand what they're thinking. I think thematically this year, they did kind of spurn things that were, one might say, celebrity related. I have to give a shout out to Adam Benzine, who is both an Oscar nominated filmmaker and writes very intelligently about documentaries. And he he really did feel like there was a kind of backlash against that sort of film. So that may explain why American Symphony and and the Michael J. Fox movie did not get in. You know, in its place, we have movies that are very much social, you know, engaged with important social issues in one way or another, and some very overtly and some slightly less so. But for instance, Bobby Wine, the people's president, I think is really about authoritarianism. And, and a man, in this case, Bobby Wine, the Ugandan pop singer, standing up against that. To Kill a Tiger, the, the backdrop is India's just lack of really confronting an epidemic of sexual assault. I, I think a lot of people would agree with that characterization. 20 Days in Mariupol, of course, that we're talking about the war in Ukraine, obviously very timely, and Four Daughters, this is by the Tunisian filmmaker Kautar Banhanya has very much to do with Islamic fanaticism and a woman whose two older daughters left the home and joined ISIS in Libya. So they're super engaged with important issues, and that those seem to really resonate this year with the Doc Branch. And as we've talked about before, there's also, there has been in the past, and one could argue this year, the, the Doc Branch screens out films that are really the more popular mass appeal films like in the past they did not give a nomination to jane brett morgan's film about jane goodall they also bypassed won't you be my neighbor a huge hit for morgan neville and uh so they do have a tendency (laughs) to look askance at anything that's been too popular in a way everything that you said I would agree that sort of the there's that popular pushback. Is it, is it celebrity? Is it something that did really well? You talk about in your article with Still, because it had just come off of, I believe, four Emmy wins. Did some in the doc branch yes. or some of the voters look at it and go, okay, well, that's TV. and Or it's been rewarded and, and we need to look elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But as you know, Matt, I'm attracted to storytelling that takes narrative risks. And... Um, mm-hmm risks in how that story is dispensed. And I, I see this group, again, it, there, you, no one can argue with these being terrific docs or the subject matter being terrific. Because to me, the doc space is becoming so difficult. If it's not murder, if it's not celebrity, it's hard to sell. If it's not important, if it doesn't feel urgent in the moment, it's hard to reward. Doc filmmakers are going to go out and keep doing what they do because they love it. Clearly, it's not about the money. But if we're not sort of expanding what is a doc, what is reaching people, what is that language of telling stories, then I, I would, I'd like to see variety, not for variety's sake, but stepping back and going, wow, this is pretty amazing. It may not feel as, quote unquote, urgent or important, but it gets that story across in a way that another storyteller couldn't. That is, you know, my takeaway as someone who, you know, has the opportunity to talk about docs with someone like yourself who covers them and talks about them has seen everything. I have not seen nearly as much, but I know and I will admit that I'm attracted to things that, oh, okay, this is, boy, this is radical in a way and I'm connected to it in a way that's different from, as a human, I feel that emotion and that empathy. As a storyteller, I'm feeling something even more or greater. 
that, that well, that's sort of my takeaway. Yeah, I, I think stylistically, I would say the most uh, adventurous among that list is Four Daughters because it does involve the use of some actresses. Mm-hmm. And in the past, the Academy or the Doc Branch has not been very open to that. Most notably <laughs> in Christian Johnson's film, Dick Johnson is Dead, where she did very imaginative kinds of dramatizations. Uh, here, they they were willing to go with it. Uh, so I'm not going to put... You are, a, of course, a member of the Motion Picture Academy, and now you... <laughs> but you're in a different branch than the doc branch. I you am. will get to vote on these. So I'm not going to ask you, and I think there's probably prohibitions. You're probably not even allowed to say who you would vote for, but... Yeah, I'm not sure what I could say or what I can't say. <laughs> we don't want to run afoul of the Academy. I know you are still very disappointed that King Cole was not shortlisted. So maybe, maybe do they allow write-ins? Can you do a write-in? <laughs> <laughs> One cannot do a write-in. I may show up outside uh, was it the Dolby <laughs> okay, it Theater now and have a protest of, of, of one when I'm out there. And again, I wouldn't, oh, you know, okay. it, it's one of those hard things. Would I take any of those films off? No. Um, would I love to see some variety in, in that regard. Um, yeah, and again, I'm not saying, hey, variety for the sake of variety, but I, I would love to see the the envelope pushed. Um, you know, you bring up King Cole. I, I love that film, and that was a film that had, I think like a lot of filmmakers, it's, it's a, you know, you, you start it at the beginning of a year, you have hopes and dreams, and, and maybe they aren't fulfilled. Their hopes and dreams began at the Sundance Film Festival. I believe that's correct. Uh, a year ago, or it would have been last year. Oh, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't quite get there, but, you know, it's like the football season. You start, you got that preseason, everybody's hopeful, everybody's a winner until that one team gets to the Super Bowl. Anyway, preseason began. Sundance Film Festival. Matt Carey, of all people, was camped out. You were there. Year 24. How was it? How was your experience up there, sir? Well, I did see some... It all comes down to, of course, did you see films that you love, that you admire, that you're excited about. And absolutely, I did uh, a bunch of them. So that gives me a great sense of satisfaction. There was some, you know, boundary-pushing documentary work, both stylistically and hard-hitting content. Yancey Ford returned uh, to the festival after Strong Island, which earned an Oscar nomination, back with Power which is a powerful examination of policing in the United States. Daughters, uh, also in U.S. documentary competition, which Kerry Washington is an executive producer of. Wow, fantastic. Porcelain War, also a Ukraine-themed film, I thought was artistically, wow, so, so impressive. Many other films that I I don't want to narrow it too much, but... uh, there were many, and and that's really exciting. And I'm assuming, and I'm hoping, you got some some interviews, some sounds, some 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 things you're going to share we with do. us. Because now you've got me teased. I I was not able to go up to Sundance. I haven't seen these, so I'm excited, and I'm excited to hear what you have to say, and I'm excited to hear you talking to these filmmakers. Well, we'll begin an exploration of some of the films in the Sundance, or some of the documentaries in the Sundance lineup with Sugarcane, also in U.S. documentary competition produced by Kellen Quinn, who is an Oscar nominee for Time, Garrett Bradley's film, returns with Sugarcane, which is very timely, and we were able to speak with the co-directors. Well, here's my report from Sundance, wherein 
I have the privilege of speaking with some of the filmmakers who debuted new documentaries at the festival. Please note that the following portions of this episode contain depictions of violence and child abuse. One of the films making its world premiere in U.S. documentary competition at Sundance 2024 is Sugarcane, and we are with the director, producer, and cinematographer Emily Cassie and with director Julian Brave Noisecat. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Matt. What's your experience been like here? It's, it's so prestigious, of course, it's to me, and I think to many people, Sundance is still the place that you want to premiere a documentary. We couldn't have asked for a better world premiere. At the core of this project is a lot of love and trust between our team, um, with our participants, with my family as well. You know, I'm also a participant in the documentary. And, you know, ha to have the opportunity to bring this story here to the best or one of the best film festivals in the entire world and to have it received the way that it's been received has just been the joy of a lifetime, honestly. Um, so we're a bit tired at this point, but it's a great kind of tired because it's it's gone so well. We just feel so lucky that and so grateful that this story is finally getting the kind of platform that it deserves um, because Indigenous peoples and peoples in this community, people in our very film, have been trying to get this out for decades. And we're so thrilled that this audience is the first to hear the truth. Yes, it's an issue that has received some attention in Canada, comparatively little in the U.S., but Explain what this is. This is about these residential schools that operated for, what, over 100 years? Mm -hmm. And really designed to erase Indigenous culture. Yes, yeah, so Sugarcane follows an investigation into abuse and missing children at uh, an Indian residential school in Williams Lake, British Columbia, called St. Joseph's Mission. It's actually the same Indian residential school that my family was sent to and where my father was born um, it's one of 139 institutions like it across Canada, where about 150,000 children were forcibly taken, often by the police, uh, from their families to be acculturated into Christianity and, and white society. There is now a truth and reconciliation process ongoing about this history in Canada, but there were actually three times as many schools in the United States and hundreds of thousands of children taken to them. And there is no similar conversation happening, despite the fact that it is the same history. The schools operated for over 150 years across the North American continent. And it's important for people to know that the last school closed in 1997. This is a recent history. This is a recent horror. And its consequences and ramifications are very present. The death toll uh, is still ticking higher as people continue to die from the brutal abuse and cycles of abuse that continue in the legacies of residential schools and Indian boarding schools in America. Yes, and there were, there were murders of children, terrible psychological abuse, physical sexual abuse of every kind. And, and I mean, trauma that is so deep, it's, it's even hard to, to fathom or describe. Yes, and at the same time, I think that our film tries to center a story about community and, and family, um, about the ties that bring us together and that endure despite the awful history of these schools and of this genocide. Um, so yes, it's a, it is a really awful history. I think that it's a challenging film because of that, and it needed to be because this was a genocide. 
Um, and at the same time, you know, what I think Emily and our cinematographers and our whole team, our editors really tried to draw out and to make a point of is that despite that history, a very beautiful indigenous way of life and connection to each other and to our land persists uh, against that near annihilation. Many of the schools in Canada, as I understand it, and I believe your film says, were run by the Catholic Church. I'm not sure about in the U.S. I'm, I'm sure many of them were. Pope Francis has made some sort of apology about that. Did that go far enough, your point of view? Well, in the, our film, I think one thing that's really amazing is one of our protagonists um, is invited to be part of that delegation to get an apology from Pope Francis. And we follow him. He is a former chief, Rick Gilbert of the Williams Lake First Nation. And he himself is a survivor of the school, survivor of abuse, and is also a devout Catholic. So this trip to the Vatican for him at the age of 77 is massive because he's reconciling the horror that he went through in a secret that he's keeping with his faith. And what was so interesting for us as we followed him on that journey um, was to see him take in this historic apology and how empty it just felt because as much as, you know, it's groundbreaking for Pope Francis to make that apology and no one has before him, it's, it's not enough. It's not enough. It does not make up for a, a system of infanticide, burning babies alive. It's not enough for priests who raped little girls in these schools for an, an attempt at an elimination of a people and a culture. It's, it's horrific. And, you know, Rick says in, in one of the kind of uh, biggest moments of the film, he's confronting a priest and he says, the Bible says saying sorry isn't enough. You have to take action. And so I think that, that we walked away from, from this experience very much from Rick's perspective. Julian, you mentioned the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada. No such thing exists in the United States. Someone might add, never been a Truth and Reconciliation Commission about slavery or anything. So this is quite consistent with American culture, if you will, in general, or American politics of a refusal to encounter the very nature of the founding of the country. We hope that the film helps drive a conversation at a national and international level and also at a, at a familial and community um, level. You know, as you were saying, the United States is not very good at reckoning with its very troubling past. And that is certainly true with respect to the history of Native American boarding schools. Uh, there is an inquiry being led by uh, Secretary of Interior Deb Holland, who is the first ever Native American cabinet secretary. She was present at our world premiere, which was, you know, such an honor to have her there. And we hope that this film helps drive that conversation here in the United States and helps support that inquiry. Um, at the same time, you know, I think that uh, the personal aspect of this film for myself and for our participants is really about having the kinds of conversations that we haven't had in our own families and communities about this history. You know, I think that many Native people, whether you're from the United States or Canada or wherever, have a figure in their family like my dad, like my kia, who, you know, they've never had gotten to have a conversation with about some of these, this history and some of this subject and how it has um, ricocheted across generations of our family trees. And I think that it's really, really important that people, Native people and, and people more broadly who watch this film are inspired to go and have those conversations with their loved ones because you know, that's not just uh, an Indian story, you know, the story of family trauma and family healing. 
that's a universal story that I think everybody can relate to. When you think of how the Sundance Institute has done and, and the festival, which is one of its programs in supporting indigenous filmmaking. Sundance has uh, done an incredible job supporting indigenous stories and filmmakers. Uh, my first time actually at the Sundance Film Festival was a decade ago. Our close family friend, Sydney Freeland, um, premiered her first film here. It was called Drunk Town's Finest. It was an independent feature fiction film. And we came just to support his family and friends and whatnot. I had no intentions of ever having a film at the Sundance Film Festival back then. Um, so it's a real trip to be here now. And uh, Sydney's actually, you know, just to say how, how significant Sundance can be for people's careers, Sydney has gone on to have an incredible career as a director and recently uh, directed Echo, which is Marvel Studios' uh, most recent series. So um, this really is a springboard, and we hope that for our story and, and also, of course, for our careers as, as filmmakers and storytellers, that it, it does a similar thing for us. Well, can you tell us about distribution of the film? That's always a big question for just about any film, fiction or nonfiction, that appears at Sundance. Oh, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I had to ask. What a yes. question. Um, you know, we've been blown away by the response to the film, um, and we're really excited to see where conversations go. And there's a lot of interest We'll announce something when there's something to announce. Sure. But in the meantime, you know, I think we've been astounded that people really understand what we're trying to say, not just from like an issue perspective of the importance of the story, but the art of the filmmaking and the craft and the care with which we took to compose something, compose a narrative, compose a visual language that transports people to another world. And, and when you go to the cinema, that's what you want. And I think one of the powers of, of film is to connect us to our humanity and something within ourselves and when a film can take you there and take you deep into people's lives and psyches and you can get lost in it I think is is when it can have the most impact so you know we hope that people feel that as well as the journalistic and historic importance of the film. Well congratulations to you both to director producer and cinematographer Emily Cassie and to director Julian Brave Noise Cat, who also, of course, is, as you said, a participant in the film, and very movingly so. Thank you both. Cooks Chem, thank you so much for, for having us. Thanks, Matt. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, Emily, for handling the audio on this, because it wouldn't have happened without you. Sound engineer. <laughs> Among many other talents. Always happy to help. <laughs> thank you so much. And again, congratulations. Thank, thank you. you. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Congratulations again to Emily Cassie and Julian Brave Noise Cat on the world premiere of Sugarcane. During Sundance, I spoke with more than a dozen documentary filmmaking teams in Deadline Studio on Main Street in Park City, and we wanted to share brief portions of some of those interviews, beginning with Daughters, which premiered in U.S. documentary competition. 
It's an incredibly moving film about a daddy-daughter dance. And what's unique about this is it takes place in a prison. Incarcerated men who have daughters are allowed to partake in a dance with their daughters. And what becomes a truly healing experience, it's directed by Natalie Ray and Angela Patton. We're going to hear from executive producer Kerry Washington, as well as one of the girls who took part in the dance, Aubrey Smith. We'll also hear from Mark Rimes, who as an inmate took part in the program and has since been released from prison. You may notice some background noise at times. It got very busy at Deadline Sundance Studios whenever large quantities of filmmakers, publicity teams, and stars drop by. Here is Kerry Washington on the documentary Daughters. Yeah, this film really hit home for me. We have another project at Simpson Street called Unprisoned, which is a comedy, really, about a father-daughter where the dad has been incarcerated most of her life and he gets out and they try to live together. So our version that we've been working on for years at Simpson Street is kind of the comedy odd couple version of this. But when I saw the documentary, it reminded me of so many of the families that we met with when we were researching families for our show. And our show is inspired by a real story, um, Tracy McMillan's story. And I also was really lucky to go to a school where we had a father-daughter dance. And I know growing up, I grew up in, in a community in the Bronx where a lot of the girls I grew up with did not have fathers in their lives. But I went to this very elite private high school in New York City where all of those girls' fathers were in their lives. And the film really reminded me of how our, you know, the zip code that we're born into or the given circumstances of our family should not set the trajectory for how much humanity we're able to have with our loved ones. Um, And this film does such a beautiful job of bridging the idea that fathers need their daughters and daughters need their fathers. And this unjust system that we call the criminal justice system, that it really separates families and tears them apart and treats these folks as if they're not human, that they don't get to touch each other, they don't get to be in community. And the film is about the need for us to pause these systems and treat each other like humans. When I saw the, um, the movie... I mean, the documentary, and I looked at the dance, I realized how much it really meant to me, mm. like, that I got to touch my father and see him, because now I don't really see him often since he, like, he's far away now. So, like, the fact that I got to, like, dance with him, it's just, like, a memory, like, that I'm going to keep forever. You know, it meant the world to me, you know, and the, the, the worst part about it was when, after the dance, that we had to separate from our daughters, you know, because the conversation me and my daughter had you know, when she looked me in my eyes and told me, Daddy, I don't want you in here no more. You know, that was the that was the the line drawn for me. So, like I said before, I couldn't stay home for 90 days without catching a new charge. But after this dance and after I met Sister Angela, Miss Lisa, Miss Nat- Miss Natalie, and Chad, after all the conversations we had, then the dance and everything else we talked about, having caught a charge in six years. You know, so this definitely changed my life. My daughter's. All of my kids changed my life, you know, and the world need to see this because everybody needs their father, you know, especially daughters. This is definitely a life-changing moment for me. And even the dads that's not here, you know, that 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 participated in the dance with us, you know, and they're still incarcerated. Some of them came home, some of them still uh, locked up. And it's just other dads in the world that need to see this that don't, that's not in their kids' life like that. Maybe this will change their lives lives like it changed my life. 
And that was an excerpt from our conversation about Daughters, the film which premiered in U.S. documentary competition at Sundance. The festival makes space for some episodic television, including the upcoming HBO documentary series The Centernon Fix, directed by Rory Kennedy and written by Mark Bailey, and we sat down with them in the Deadline studio. And you've been at many Sundances. Welcome back here. It's, it wouldn't be a Sundance without Rory Kennedy and without Mark as well. You brought your Boeing film here, uh, Downfall, most recently. That was the virtual edition of Sundance. The Synanon fix, for those who don't know what Synanon was, I mean, it was a major... Well, explain to me what, what Synanon was. It's a little bit hard to sum up, but you probe it in such depth in your series. Well, thank you for that. Um, it's, it is hard to sum up, so thankfully it's a four-part series, which <laughs> tries to do it justice. But it was, a, it was the first drug rehab program, mm-hmm. residential rehab program for, you know, heroin addicts, hardcore drug addicts. That was established in the United States in 1958 in Santa Monica. And it evolved into a lifestyle community and then what many consider to be a cult. Um, so we track that over the course of its, its three-decade lifespan. And, um, and it's really told from the perspective of the people who are there. Right, and including the daughter of, of the founder of it. Mark, maybe you can talk about this. Rather interesting man who was who founded it, you know, presumably with good intentions initially. It then expanded and spiraled in, in curious and harmful dire- directions to many people. Yeah, yeah, it was um, a fascinating man and, and a, a truly charismatic leader, um, Charles Chuck Dieterich. And uh, Dieterich was a uh, recovering alcoholic, um, a bit of a wash up who had, you know a trail of broken families and was recovering in his middle life. And he, using AA methodology, began this incredibly sort of innovative um, and effective rehab and therapeutic community. Nobody was really addressing hard drug use and how to, you know, there was no place for these addicts to go. And Dieterich really kind of single-handedly created one that was hailed by senators and presidents and movie stars as being this, you know, quote-unquote, miracle on the beach. The beach being Santa Monica. Yeah, the beach, sorry, the beach being in Santa Monica, California, and then later facilities up in the uh, Tamales, you know, uh, San Francisco Bay Area, and um, eventually throughout the country, and it became a real sort of behemoth. And, And Dieterich, who was a complicated and brilliant guy, sort of changed along with it. And in that way, it, it kind of becomes the cautionary tale of unchecked power and a community that's really built around the cult of personality and one individual. And when that individual sort of starts to drift, the community, you know, following with, so. The Synanon Fix will be airing on HBO in the spring, exact date to be announced. 824 is behind Look Into My Eyes, which debuted in the premiere section at Sundance, and we talked with director Lena Wilson. Tell us about your film. It's about a group of, of psychics in New York City. Yes, it's a group of New York City psychics who conduct deeply intimate readings with their clients. And at the beginning of the film, we're plunged into the sessions. But over the course of the film, we get to know the psychics. We learn about their shared backgrounds in the performing arts in many cases, their shared experiences with loss and loneliness. And ultimately, it's a film about how 
we as humans need witnesses in order to better see ourselves. How did you get interested in the subject? It actually happened the day after Trump's election. I was depressed, sad, horrified, uh, really concerned about the future in the most literal sense. I'd never been to a psychic before, but I sat down and immediately felt incredibly emotional. And I had this sensation of like that I was looking in a mirror with this sudden clarity at my own heartbroken, devastated state. And that was really powerful to me. And then the psychic came in and gave me a reading and I, I, I felt, you know, comforted. I don't remember exactly what she said. It was brief, but it was very gentle and nice. And I, I paid her $5. And as I was leaving, she said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a documentary filmmaker. She said, oh, what kinds of movies? And at that time, I was finishing this movie called The Departure. And so I said, I'm making one about a punk rocker turned priest who helps counsel suicidal people. And the psychic said, sounds like my life. And I said, what? And she said, people come in here with such serious situations at real crossroads in their lives you would never imagine. And I, and I was so surprised to hear that. And that was a light bulb moment for me where I thought I had no idea. And wouldn't it be incredible to have a film where you get to be inside these conversations and see this wash of humanity come through these rooms? A lot of the psychics are connecting with dead people. And I can't tell you if dead grandma is in the room or not. I have no idea. You know, no one, we can't all agree on what happens in the afterlife, if there is an afterlife. You know, those are not answers I have. But what I saw in the rooms was two people having a deep connection. In some cases, it's it's not connecting necessarily with departed loved ones, but with, you know, say mom or, or dad. That, and, you know, you're getting a sense of, oh, there, there's, there's some issues going on in the relationship. Someone's deeply troubled. And or in, in certain instances with pets. Yes, we have one pet psychic in the film. And I mean, there's a lot of humor in the film in general. I hope people will laugh watching it. There's a lot of wackiness and weirdness. And some of my favorite scenes are with the pet psychic. There's someone who's asking her about his lizard, who a zookeeper has absconded to New Jersey, and he has not heard from the lizard, who's named Bobby Jr. And he wants to know... Um, you know, is my lizard happy? And should I go to New Jersey and try to, you know, rescue <laughs> rescue the lizard? And to my surprise, the psychic said no to both of those questions. It was not what the client wanted to hear. And I found it very interesting because it was kind of an acknowledgement of what happens when you say goodbye to people, to relationships. You have to move on and let this go. But at the same time, the emotional relationship, the connection, the impact that a person or an animal that's gone still has on you is real. Another Sundance film with a lot of humor in it is Will and Harper about actor-comedian Will Ferrell and his close friend Harper Steele. She was the former head writer of Saturday Night Live and a few years ago came out as trans. One thing led to another and Will and Harper decided to embark on a road trip across America. Uh, maybe I'll throw that to Will first. The origins of it, you're, it's during the pandemic. You get an email from your good friend that you've known from SNL for so long. And yeah. tell us a little bit about that and how it led to this road trip. Yes. Uh, received an email from, from Harper with, with the headline that said, here's a weird one. And uh, she began to explain that at the age of 59, she was going to transition. And... So immediately responded and said, congrats, we love you, uh, amazing, this, that, and the other. However, you know, uh, 
it was big news for all of us. And, uh, um, but it took it, it, you too. It was big news. For yeah. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. Imagine the show. Imagine yeah. the and by 39, by the way. Yeah. 39. Sorry. But I think it took us, it took us a good six months before we actually had a face to face kind of sit down. And during that time, someone, a mutual friend had, had said that Harper was lamenting about the fact that these road trips, that if you know Harper, that's part of her DNA. She's, she's been driving cross country four or five times a year for as long as we've known her, uh, that she was now slightly fearful of what that would mean as a trans woman now. And when we finally got to have our face-to-face coffee and give each other a hug, I proposed this idea that, uh, we take this trip, uh, gives me a chance to support her. It gives me a chance to ask her questions that I have. And, uh, and then I don't know why I said it, but and and we'll film it. <laughs> and uh, and you and said she, absolutely no problem at all. You not know, not no really. Anxiety no, about not this. really. Uh, I'm yeah. gonna think about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What the doc did for me was give me a little more confidence as a trans woman. I will say you probably don't want to be overly confident. I'm still a little leery of what I would do in my 20s and 30s when I was performing male. Um, but I think uh, uh, I am a lot more confident, and I think this documentary helped me immensely in that sense. What were some of the things that were maybe most emotional or, or opportunities for, for learning, if you will? You know, uh, yeah, there were a number of moments. I mean, for, for me, it was, it was a chance to transition myself in a way to... Uh, to learn, to, to, to get to know my friend even more than I knew her before, to get to ask these questions that I think a lot of cis people still have, uh, for me to struggle on camera with asking these questions. And then there, yeah, there are a couple emotional moments where I'm struggling with making sure I stand up for my friend in, in, in moments that felt tense for us and feeling like I, like I fail at times, but I think we were, we were obviously both willing to, to go there. You, you kind of, that's, what's kind of crazy about a documentary. You do eventually forget their cameras there and we let our guard down and, and we're able to have these super honest and kind of frank discussions. Let me take it back though, a little bit to okay. SNL of like, it's a reunion uh, movie in a sense of Kristen Wiig and Will Forte. We see Lauren Michaels and all that. Yeah. Kristen, did you do a good job with with the song? Ultimately, you were trying to get her to write the song yeah. for the film. She, yeah. You know, it took a bit of prodding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, did she come through in your in your view? Did she did she hit a home run with that? She was awful. She, yeah, it was, it was not up to our standards. No, we yeah. We're not, we're not friends anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. She, she yeah. nailed it as far as I'm concerned. No, she, yeah, yeah, she, she blew wonderful. us away. I mean, what, what was surprising, and of course, knowing Kristen, she went off on her own and yeah. literally did this thing, which was a complete surprise to us. Yeah. We were hoping she would follow through as we prod her throughout the movie to write us a theme song. <laughs> and then what she delivered was so sweet and touching and yet funny still in its own way, but really kind of blew us away. Well, we're going to have to wait a number of months, but we will see if some of those Sundance films end up in the Oscar race 2025. The festival did score a couple of 
Oscar nominations for films that premiered last year, well, in 2023, at Sundance, namely 20 Days in Mariupol and The Eternal Memory. Otherwise, the in terms of Oscar nominations, they were really spread out. Bobby Wine, the People's President, premiered at Venice. Uh, Four Daughters premiered at Cannes. And To Kill a Tiger premiered at TIFF in uh, Toronto International Film Festival in 2022. So that's kind of interesting to note that there was some recognition in that sense spread out. But uh, we'll keep an eye out as the, the year develops to see which films get distribution, hopefully and then get traction in the awards race. But that that's a ways down the line. Yeah, I, for me, this is going to be an interesting year. We, you and I started these conversations towards the end of last year. So this is going to be my first full year of really looking at and tracking and watching the trajectory of these films. Um, I enjoy documentaries so much. I've enjoyed these conversations. And I, I feel in some ways just more focused on the nuance of the the cycles of people seeing these things, the filmmakers really struggling with these amazing films to to get them in front of people. It's one thing to go through this entire process of making something. And when I do things in a narrative space, unless something really goes wrong and we see it on occasion, uh, I think we I just saw something, um, a Halle Berry film called Mothership, which apparently Netflix is now shutting down and they're saying they're not going to put it out. It's rare in the narrative space that once you make a film, that it's not Mm. going to go somewhere and you're not going to have some opportunity for people to see it. And for these documentary filmmakers to go through everything that they have to do to tell these stories and then not even be sure that anyone is going to pick it up, that it's going to end up anywhere where there's some kind of distribution. And by the way, these are not just no-name or non-name filmmakers. Some are filmmakers of of Mm. note or producers of note who are attached to a project. And some, certainly in the doc community, are filmmakers that that maybe the wider uh, general audiences may not know who they are, but are very well established and are still struggling to get these stories out. So I'm excited to be able to take that journey with you. I'm very excited hopefully that that you and I can really help some of these films that we see, that we like, that we appreciate, um, at least get some measure of recognition. I'm not saying that you and I can <laughs> get these things set up, but I'm excited to be able to advocate for things. <laughs> we that, do our um, best. We do our best. We try. And you know what? Sometimes trying, that's all you can do, and it's very, very <laughs> exciting. It's always interesting when these nominations come out. I've separated myself from them in some ways, but um, it is an exciting time of year, and I, I do want to say congratulations to all the filmmakers um, to, across, you know, in, in all categories, in all spaces who got the nominations. I, I would say, and as I said before, to even people who got quote-unquote snubbed, you got to be part of the conversation. You got to be part of the conversation before you can even get snubbed. So it's weird, it sucks, but I'm just thankful that there are so many types of stories, types of films, and people are still irrespective of the crazy state of entertainment these days. We're out there just pushing that rock up the mountain. So, John, next week on Doc Talk, we plan to have one or more of the Oscar-nominated filmmakers on the show. We're busily booking. I say we. We're definitely getting (laughs) assistance in that regard from uh, our supporters, our colleagues. You and I are dialing the phones. (laughs) (laughs) Possibly that could happen, but we do have a lot of help, and I'm really looking forward to that. So that's going to be on next week's episode of Doc Talk. And we hope that we will see the audience and all of you back with us. Thanks very much. We'll see you next week on Doc Talk. Mm-hmm.